what a joy it is to get to talk about unity this morning. Especially given that many of us in our, or many of us have become discouraged in the past year or months with our denomination, with our classes, with our world. We've seen people walking away from the church, maybe forever, we don't know. We've not been able to visit or spend time with family and friends, loved ones, who don't know the joy of being a part of God's family. For that matter, we haven't been able to spend time with our family and loved ones who do know the joy of being a part of God's family. All that to say, unity feels very difficult these days. As we begin this series on unity, I want to suggest to you, however, that the kind of unity that's difficult and painful is different from the kind of unity that Christ calls us to. Human unity comes from human strength, human power, and human ideas. This is the fragile unity that often we begin with, unity that's easily broken and painful to maintain. But God's unity comes from God's strength. In God's unity, we see, the, we see God's glory. We experience God's love. The unity that God wants to bring is the joy of our world, the desire of our hearts. It's what we were created for. So as we begin this sermon series this morning, we're going to look at what God's unity looks like. And we're going to start with Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region, the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered him, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So far, the reading of God's word. As we start this series on unity, I wanted to start with this passage because this is one of the most foundational, and then therefore, unfortunately, one of the most controversial passages in Scripture. Among other things, this passage is the first time that the word church is referenced or, or used in the New Testament. In Greek, the word that's translated as church means those called out, called out from the world. Probably many of you know that Roman Catholics use this passage as the establishment of the, the role of the Pope and the papacy. Roman Catholics see Peter as the rock on which Jesus builds his church. And therefore, it's Peter who holds the keys to the kingdom and Peter's successors, the popes. Protestants have reacted against this interpretation by Catholics. And they said, no, it's Peter's rock-hard confession 
That's what Jesus says that he'll build his church on. And so if you or I or any of us like Peter, if we also say Jesus is the son of the living God, then we will share in the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think that that's a true statement that when we say that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that we share in the family of God. Not just when we say that, but when we demonstrate that with our lives. But while that's a true statement, it hardly seems like a fair interpretation of Jesus' words here. After all, Jesus could have said something as straightforward as, on your confession, that's how my church will be built. But he didn't. He said, on this rock. So where and how will Jesus build his church? What is he talking about? To help us get a picture of what is going on in this text, I want to invite you to watch this one-minute short video uh, from a company called Drive Through History. In addition to magnificent Roman structures, Caesarea Philippi is also known for Banyas, a collection of springs, and pagan worship sites linked to the cult of Pan. Pan, also called the Goat God, was the Greco-Roman god of nature, livestock, and hunting. All things related to wild times, party music, and of course, fertility. Pan was the crazy looking guy with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. The centerpiece of this ancient worship site is this huge cliff and grotto containing the remains of numerous altars, caves, temples, and courtyards. This whole area was teeming with Roman mythology and idolatry. It was right here where Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, asked his disciples one profound question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. Location matters. We often forget that, and that's why I wanted to show you the video. So you could see the hot day. You could see the desert climate. You could see the rock that stands there at Philippi on the, show, on the, on the edge, the slopes of Mount Hermon, which is really outside of the city of Philippi, the only thing that's going on. It's desert, the city of Philippi, and then Mount Hermon, the biggest mountain in, uh, for, for many miles. If you were an Israelite reading Matthew's story, or, or better yet, having it read to you, because that's how things worked in the first century, then even if you didn't know Philippi, and you closed your eyes and you imagined the world where Jesus was standing, the slopes of Mount Hermon, you would still be familiar with this area. The Israelites listening to Matthew's words would have known, uh, even if they didn't know anything about Caesarea Philippi, they would have known about Mount Hermon. They would have known that this Mount Hermon was the home of Baal, the Canaanite god. You can see Baal there, the, the bull in the top left. They would have known that Mount Hermon was the mountain of Marduk, the Babylonian god, who looks a little bit like a bull maybe, but was a dragon. 
The Israelites knew that before, this, before the Romans came and, came and named this city after Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, the whole area was called Bashan. And if you really know your Old Testament, you might remember one of the kings, Og, king of Bashan. He was one of the kings that the Israelites, when they entered the land with, Jer- with Joshua, Og, king of Bashan, was one of the kings they did not defeat. That was where his kingdom was. Probably none of us, I'm guessing, know, though, that Bashan means place of the serpent, a common reference in Scripture to Satan. According to the Apocrypha, and this just goes on and on and on, according to the Apocrypha, the book of 1 Enoch, Mount Hermon was the place Genesis 6 was talking about. When it said that the sons of God came down and mated with the daughters of men, rebelling against God in the process. I'm going through all of, these, uh, all, all of this background about this area, about Philippi and Mount Hermon, because I want you to understand that this area, more than any other in Scripture, this Mount Hermon was the place, time and time again, where spiritual forces And people gathered against God and stood against God and his kingdom. Baal, Bashan, Marduk, the sons of God who came down and mated with the daughters of men and rebelled against God. If an Israelite audience closed their eyes and as they heard Matthew's gospel, they would not, they couldn't help but feel a chill despite the sunny, hot climate. You see, the Israelites believed that because of all I just said and much more, but they believed that Mount Hermon was the gateway to hell, that it was the door to the realm of the dead. And Jesus is standing on the doorstep. Jesus is standing on the slopes of Mount Hermon in the area of Caesarea Philippi, the home of all of the idols and false gods that the video talked about. And all the rebellion against God in the spiritual realm that history tells us about. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus gives Peter and the rest of his disciples a vision of a strong and united church. A group of people called out from the world to be a part of God's family and a part of God's mission. Jesus proclaims the triumph of his kingdom. He's so confident that God's kingdom will come and that his church will be built strong and unified, that the world will know God's salvation, that he proclaims the coming of his kingdom right on the enemy's doorstep. Because many of us don't know all of this background, Christians often look back and wrongly interpret Jesus' words about hell or Hades here. When we hear Jesus say that the gates of hell will not overcome the church, we, uh, we think we should be watching out for demonic attack. But think about Jesus' words again. Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive structures. 
Jesus is standing on the doorstep of Hades and hell and proclaiming that those gates will not stand against the onslaught and the offense of God's coming kingdom. That his church will be triumphant. Jesus is not instructing his disciples how to defend themselves against the dark arts. He's intending that as his church, we would be so united in our offense, not against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6 says, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus proclaims boldly the glory and the love of God's coming kingdom, that it will permeate every area of the cosmos, every area of earth. Nothing will stand against the onslaught and the offense of God's church, strong in his glory, united in his love. Jesus shares his vision for a strong and united church many times throughout the Gospels. He says it, he, he again prays for those called out from the world in John 17. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me. He's praying to his father, saying, I've given them those called out from the world, the church. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought together to complete unity. Then... The world will know that you sent me, that you loved them even as you loved me. Christ has shared his glory with his church. He's loved us fully and perfectly, just as the Father loves his Son fully and perfectly. Jesus doesn't speak about unity as if it would, well, it would be a nice thing. For Jesus, unity is the expectation. It's the inevitable conclusion that his people, his church, will achieve. Then, he says, then the world will know him when the church is united. But Jesus isn't just talking about the world we see, the world we think about. The, the Greek word is one I've already referenced this morning, one we've borrowed into English, the cosmos. Jesus says, then the cosmos will know that you loved me. The cosmos is everything that exists, even hell and Hades itself. How does Jesus say he'll build his church? By sharing the glory of the Father, by embodying the love of the Father with his people. Jesus, in other words, built his church to be the representation of God's kingdom on earth until he comes again. The unified church is God's plan for redemption, for renewal, and restoration. The unified church is God's plan for building his kingdom. There is no plan B. God expects that his church will expand continually because the story of redemption is the story of the whole cosmos being prepared to once again see our Father's glory, to once again know and receive and experience his perfect love. To use a, a military analogy that is, I think, appropriate given the, the offensive nature of Jesus' words, Jesus has designed the church to be the beachhead. God's the beachhead for the offensive of the kingdom of God. 
God's kingdom comes, his church or his, his glory and his love come, and they come first to the church, first to the people of God called out from the world, and then through the church, because of the church, God's glory and his love comes to the rest of the world, even into the gates of hell. So what does this all have to do with unity? Jesus says something, or rather doesn't say something, that's rather significant in his prayer in John 17. Given the Western culture in which all of us live, we might expect that Jesus would say something like this, that the world will know me when you tell them the truth about who I am. That's not at all what Jesus says. He says, instead, the world will know that you, Father, sent me when the church is brought to complete unity. So what does this complete unity look like? What does it mean for River Park Church to be brought to complete unity? I hope what I said in the beginning in the introduction is clear now. That Jesus is not talking about unity the way our world does. Worldly unity looks like uniformity. It's unity by power group. Unity one ethnocentric way and each group has each group has a different way of trying to force unity, don't we? Let's examine our own hearts for a moment. If you if you or I if we have a picture of unity and diversity as opposites or as incompatible, then we can be sure that our picture of unity is a worldly perspective or a worldly picture of unity. Because worldly unity comes from human strength and human power. Unity from a worldly perspective ends in division and ends in hurt. It lasts only for a short time. So what about the church? What about God's, what does God's complete unity look like for those of us who have been called out from the world. Again, location matters. If we want to answer that question, we don't just have to look at Jesus' words in Philippi. We have to look at Calgary. We have to look at River Park. We have to look to our world today. I'll give you one more example before we do that. Sun Chan Ra, in his book about prophetic lament, tells a story about a gang member in Boston in the U.S. who was shot and killed. When this person's funeral service was held at a local church, violence broke out in the church during the funeral service. And a second man was stabbed and killed inside the church walls. Sun Chen Ra comments, he says this, the church had not gone out into the streets, and so the streets came into the church. The suffering in the city was unfettered, unlimited. The church had failed to be the shalom in the city. And they realized that. And so churches in Boston got together and formed the Ten Point Coalition. Led by African-American key church leaders, Ten Point employed multiple strategies to curb youth violence. Home visits school visits, nightly patrols, prayer vigils every week and sometimes every day, cooperation with the police. All of these were part of the strategy, the 10-point strategy to curb violence. And when this initiative kicked off in the 1990s, 
The Boston homicide rate dropped by 80%. It became known as the Boston miracle. Now just think for a moment about the, the diversity of people who needed to be involved for all of that to happen. People with different skills, different jobs, different genders, different generations, different abilities. And of course, people from different ethnic groups who all had to be involved and play a different part and role in this diverse and incredible work. Think about the sheer scope of it. School visits, home visits, nightly patrols, prayer vigils every week, sometimes every day. Sun Chen Ra tells a story about police partnering with pastors, going two by two, knocking on doors of at-risk youth. Think about all the work that went into that. And then wonder for a moment, how could God's church in Boston possibly be divided when they were so busy sharing God's glory and God's love with a world that was literally dying around them. There was no opportunity. They had no energy left for disagreement. Their, their, all of their energy, all of their time was poured into the city that they loved of sharing the glory of the God they loved with the place they loved. Now, of course, we're not standing in Boston. We're not standing on the slopes of Mount Hermon with Jesus and his disciples. But God has brought us together from all over the world to stand and to stay in Calgary, in one of the fastest growing cities in Canada. He's given us, as a River Park church, he's given us a vision to reach out, to draw in, to create a mosaic community. It's a vision that calls us too to go on the offensive with Jesus. Not to go on the offensive against our world, but to go on the offensive for our city and for our world against the powers and principalities of darkness. And there's so much for us to do. How could we possibly be divided when we, are, when we are driven by the glory and the love of God and compelled to share his glory and to share his love with the city that we love and the city where we stand? When we commit ourselves to sharing God's glory, to sharing his love with those who stand and live where we stand and live, we will quickly run out of energy for disunity and for division. We will only be able to see and celebrate the coming of God's kingdom and the, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst through us, through people who look like I look and like you look, and for people whose lives are very different from ours. If our mission as River Park Church is for our city, then it's for all who inhabit our city. Multiculturalism, God's, the mission that God has given us, we sometimes mistakenly, again, think is for others. But it's not. It's for all of us. If the kingdom of God is in the kingdom of God and in the church, everyone has a role. Everyone has a part to play. Each of us 
is a necessary participant with different gifts, different skills, different genders, generations, abilities, different ethnic groups, all brought together to serve one purpose, to share God's, to to enjoy God's glory, to enjoy God's love, and to share it with our world. This past week, in the U.S. at least, it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It was a really meaningful opportunity for me, again, to reflect on our deep need in Western society for multicultural and multi-ethnic partnership. In a sermon on the Good Samaritan, Reverend Dr. King talks about the difference between a worldly view of unity and God's view. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man is beaten and left to die on the side of the mountain road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Again, place matters. If we know, if you know anything about the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, then you know that that too is, that road is built into the side of a mountain. That it drops almost 10,000 feet in two miles. And that along one side of the road is a steep cliff well above you. With lots of good hiding spots. For people that want to make trouble and rob and pillage along the side of the road. And you know the story that a Levi and a priest pass by on the other side of the road. They're not just randomly picking a side of the road. They know that on this side of the road, it's, they're, they're in the shadow of the mountain. And on the other side of the road, they're, they're a little bit safer. They're in the sun. They're a little more protected and they have a little more time to react. And so the Levite and the priest pass by the road, pass by on the other side of the road. Well, this Samaritan, a man from a different ethnic group, enemies to the Jews, he stops to help the man who's been beaten. He takes ownership for this man's recovery. Then Reverend Dr. King says this, which I think is profound in shaping what it looks like for us to be united. He says, I imagine that the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Dr. King concludes that the true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, even his life for the welfare of others. Worldly unity is afraid of diversity. It looks around at someone different from us and it says, what will happen to me if I help this person? But the unity that comes from God asks in love, If I do not stop to help this person, what will happen to him? How do we know that this is the unity from God and not from our world? Because this is the love that God has for us. This is the love of Jesus, the true neighbor, who gave up his position and his prestige and even his life for the welfare of those of us who lie dead on the road or nearly dead 
on the road of life. Jesus is the one who came to us when we were beaten and bloody, when we were defiled and dirty, when we were outside the walls of safety and protection. Jesus was the, ones, the one who healed our wounds with his blood, who clothed us and fed us with his body. Jesus is the one who set us on our feet, who allows us to stand in right relationship with God. It was Jesus who ushered us into God's glory, who welcomed us and cared for us as if we were his own family, so that even when we were not his family and not welcome, we became welcome. We became his family. Our unity is not in our diversity. Instead, our diversity testifies to the immeasurable glory and the infinite love of a God who has given himself fully to each of us so that different as we are, we might see in one another a different dimension of the glory and love our Heavenly Father has. When we see our Father's glory in each other, when we see his love for each other, and when we begin to love each other the way that our Heavenly Father loves us, then we will be unified. And then the gates of hell will tremble. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we sang this morning, you are the one who saves us. We celebrate that you are the one who unites us. You have seen us at our worst, beaten and bloodied, defiled and dirty. You've cleaned us up, brought us to your home, and invited us to become part of your family, to receive the honor of your glory and the joy of your love. Teach us, Lord, to be like you. That we would not wonder when we see a world around us, what will happen to me if I help? But rather we will see the world that you love, the city that you love, with your eyes of love. That we will wonder, if we do nothing, what will happen to them? And that we will be spurred on by your, by your feet, by your hands, by your spirit within us, by your power to share your glory and to share your love with the world, the cosmos, the whole, the whole of everything. God, may we be united in that goal and in that purpose that you have given us until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we sing our last song, I'm going to invite you to stand and receive God's parting blessing. And then we're going to sing about the goodness of God. What a wonderful way to end our service. We get to sing about God's goodness as we prepare to go into our world. So go with his blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you all. And all God's people say, Amen.